Good morning, church family. Let me extend a welcome to you also. Thank you for joining us this morning as we reflect together upon the Word of God and join in giving praise to the Lord through singing, prayer, and the preaching of God's Word. We are going to spend the next two weeks together and reflect on the idea of church membership. This morning, the task laid before me is to make a biblical case for church membership. Is participation in the body of Christ a requirement? Is joining a specific church a biblical concept? Is this something that God would have me do? We want to look at these this morning through a variety of different passages that we've selected that have been printed for you in your worship guide this morning. Is church membership biblical? Do I actually have to join a specific local church? Can't I just participate one Sunday morning at that building down the road that says Woodlawn Baptist, and next church, next week participate at the church across town called Jefferson Baptist, and the week following that join at the church down the road called Healing Place, and the Sunday after that participate at uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church down Jones Creek, and the Sunday after that, 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 just take vacation, and the following Sunday, join downtown. I mean, after all, I am going to a church. I am participating in the worship of a triune God with a collection of people that I think are believers because the sign out front said they're a church. Does the Bible anticipate, expect, command that I actually participate, join with one local body of believers. I would like to make a case for you this morning from the text of Scripture that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. It is the expectation of the text of Scripture that you and I actually join through some type of process a local New Testament Bible-believing congregation where my faith in Christ is affirmed and where I can grow in sanctification. The New Testament, the Bible, knows of no such person who claims Christ as their Savior and rejects commitment to the local New Testament church. Writing in 249 at a period of time in which the church was facing intense persecution, 
Beginning in 249, for about an 11-year period, the church went through a very intense persecution by the empire, and there was a bishop down in Carthage by the name of Cyprian. And Cyprian was reflecting upon the church, and particularly the question that was posed for him was, what about the people who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but due to the persecution, fled the church, but now that persecution is over, they want to be reunited with the church. Cyprian wrote on the unity of the church and sought to answer this question. In writing to answer this question, he noted, quote, no one who forsakes the church of Christ can receive the rewards of Christ. He is a stranger. He is profane. He is an enemy. No one can have God as their father who does not have the church as his mother. A contemporary Christian theologian by the name of Sinclair Ferguson noted as his reflection on the New Testament that there are two emphases that are crystal clear in the New Testament. First, belonging to a church is one of the privileges of being a Christian. Dr. Ferguson is saying one of the things that's indisputable from the text of Scripture is that belonging to a local New Testament church is a privilege of being a Christian, and secondly, it is also one of our central responsibilities. Belonging to a church family is not an optional extra. Say, Pastor, thank you for this reflection and saying to us that yes, we should be connected to a local New Testament church. Do you mind turning for me to a specific text and arguing from a specific text for me that I must join a New Testament church or that membership in a New Testament church is indeed a biblical uh, command? Where can I go in the New Testament that says for me to join X church that I must do A, B, C, and D? For example, where does it say that before I can join Woodlawn Baptist Church, I have to share my testimony. After all, I joined a church 25 years ago, and they didn't make me do that. Or what about the church who says, before you can join our church, we want you to go through like an official membership class. Like, pastor, where does the Bible tell me that I have to go through a membership class in order to actually join this church? I want to respond with clarity this morning, that there isn't a single text that we can turn to in the context of our Bibles that says you must join this church, a church, and to do so, you have to follow these five steps, these four steps, that this process should be one month, two months, a year. At the same time, friends, neither can you turn in your Bibles and find the word Trinity, for example. But we don't deny that the New Testament clearly teaches that there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, 
who share in this same divine essence. We can turn to numerous texts of scriptures in the context of the New Testament and look at the outworking of this idea called the Trinity. So where in the world do we find this idea that you and I bear a responsibility of partnering with, connecting with, participating in a local New Testament church? Where do we get this idea that we must join, if you will, a local New Testament church? I'm so thrilled you came this morning asking those questions. Let's take a look in the New Testament as we reflect on this idea together. First, I want to ground the expectation of our participation in a local church through the authority of the local church. The church has authority in declaring who is and who is not a believer. I'd like for you to look with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. We live in such an individualized culture at the very heart of the expression of what it means to be an American is this expression of individuality. And we even see expressions of individuality in the context of the New Testament. For example, when Jesus comes again and God, through Christ, executes final eschatological judgment, that judgment will be a very singular expression. For example, Hank, you're going to stand before God and he's going to judge you, Hank, not based on Lewis. He's not going to base his judgment, you, Hank, even on your family, even though you have a great wife and two wonderful daughters. And he's not going to judge you based off of the totality of the people at Woodlawn Baptist. Each of us will stand before God and we will individually give an account before God for the lives that we live. There is an expression of individuality in the context of the New Testament. But don't miss the corporate nature of the New Testament, nor the corporate nature as it relates to salvation. Matthew chapter 18 is a text of scripture that primarily deals with this idea of offense in the context of the local church. Aren't you thankful the Lord knew the human heart better than anybody else, and he knew that we were going to be offensive toward one another. I promise you, in 10 years, I've offended you, and you've offended me. You've offended your wife, and you've offended your children, and your wife has offended you, and we've all offended each other in the context of this church. How in the world are we to respond to one another when we experience this great offense? Not just offense, actual sin against another brother or sister. Well, Matthew answers that question for us. So in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says to us, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you even as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. There I am among you. We first see a very similar expression of this text in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, it's disconnected from this idea of offense, of sin, in the context of the life of the church. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is having this incredible conversation with Peter. And we learn from Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus is going to use Peter in the establishing of his church and that Peter and the disciples that would follow bear this incredible responsibility of wielding these keys. And we wonder what in the world are these keys? Well, if it were not for Matthew chapter 18, we might could have fun with the keys. For example, we might say, as some in contemporary Christianity proclaim, I've got the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So I've got a flight this afternoon at four o'clock out of Baton Rouge and the weather's gonna be bad. I will wield the keys of the kingdom and I will command the weather. Weather, be peaceful so that I can fly out of Baton Rouge International Airport today at four o'clock. Or my mother is not well and God has given me the keys to the kingdom. We can bind and we can loose. So I am going to bind this sickness that has come upon my mother, and I am going to loose it in the name of Jesus. And so my mother is going to step up out of her sick bed and walk around the house this afternoon. Or perhaps you say, I need a new car. And Jesus has said, we have the keys to the kingdom and we can bind and loose things. And I am going to bind my boss that won't pay me enough money and I'm going to loose his bank account so that his money flows into my bank account so that I can buy a new car. Well, if we didn't have Matthew chapter 18, perhaps we might come to the conclusion that this is exactly the expression that Jesus is giving us in Matthew chapter 16. But we have Matthew chapter 18. And what is clear in the context of Matthew chapter 18 is this corporate expression ultimately of salvation. Who is the highest human authority in declaring who is and who is not a believer? We live in America and we want to answer that question in such an affirmative way, I am. It's like one lady a few years ago who wanted to join Woodlawn. Real sweet, very kind, came for several months, said she wanted to join the church, and she 
we started a process with her and said, you've got to share, we want you to share your testimony and we'll record a video of it, of you. And she said to me after two or three conversations about this, pastor, I just have to say to you, it's no one else's business about my relationship with the Lord. I'm not going to join this church. I can't help but think that this dear sweet lady's opinion concerning her testimony and others' opinion of that testimony is not in some ways the prevailing expression and thought among American evangelical Christianity. What business is it of yours how I came to faith in Christ? Well, friends, Jesus himself, not Lewis, not some 18th century Baptist preacher or 3rd century Christian bishop, but Jesus himself establishes for you and me that the church is the highest human expression in declaring who is and who is not a believer to the extent, friend, that if you are not connected with a single local expression of a New Testament church, you should not find hope in your salvation and your faith before the Lord. Now, please understand what I said and what I didn't say. I did not say you are not a believer. Because while the church is the highest human expression in declaring who is and who is not a believer, we are not God. God himself will make the ultimate, final adjudication of your life and of my life. But it is a dangerous thing for you and for me to suppose that we can walk rightly with God and do so disconnected from the local New Testament church. You and I need to have our faith affirmed by the local New Testament church. This is one of the expressions of the assurance of salvation. Say, Pastor, what in the world makes you think that the church is the highest human authority in declaring who is and who is not a believer? Matthew chapter 18. Throughout church history, this is what we have come to affectionately call regenerate church membership. Only believers can be members of a local New Testament church. How do we know who believers are? How is the church to make a judgment of who is and who is not a believer? How are we to make a, judge, how are we to make a judgment of who is not a believer? Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 gives us this paradigm for how we make this judgment of who is not a believer specifically. But as we get down in this text, and Jesus in verse 18 says, Truly, I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
perhaps the most well-known use of verse 14 is in errant prayers from time to time where we take affirmation that God will indeed hear our prayers because the prayer has been offered in the testimony and in the witness of two or three. Perhaps you've heard it. Lord, we know that you are here today. For the Bible says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in, the mid, in, in, in your midst or among you. Friends, is there a place where Christ is not? Is there a place where God is not? Is there a place where the Spirit is not? No. What is this language of two or three? Jesus is giving to his church the assurance that when the church comes together to make this declaration, specifically in this text of who is not a believer, that we can make that declaration with the authority of heaven. This is one of the reasons why, church family, we highly encourage you to participate in members' meetings. Why? Because one of the weightiest, most important decisions that this church can ever declare is who can join our church and who cannot be a member of our church. So friend, if you're in the process of joining our church, we have a process for a very specific reason because we believe and take serious Jesus's commands in Matthew 16 and 18. We believe that you're presenting yourself for membership is you saying to us, I am a believer, and then to the best of our ability, we're going to weigh your confession of faith as you live your life among us for a period of time, as you participate in the body of Christ, as you connect with others, ultimately as you share your testimony, and this church hearing your testimony, seeing your faith expressed in the life of this church will gather and will ultimately make a decision. Yes or no, I believe he or she is a believer. Where do we start with an idea that church membership is biblical and that we desperately need that connection to the church? Matthew chapter 18. For we learn that the church is the highest human expression of declaring who is and who is not a believer. Secondly, the congregation's authority. As you look at the pastoral epistles, you'll notice that a large majority of the pastoral epistles were written to whom? Churches. Churches. To local gatherings of churches. And we'll notice just briefly as we look at the congregation's authority, I want to look at the congregation's authority as it relates to doctrine, the congregation's authority as it relates to discipline, and the congregation's authority as it relates to mission. Let's look at the congregation's authority as it relates to mission first from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, In Acts chapter 13, we have this incredible mission of Barnabas and Saul. Who bears a responsibility for declaring what the mission of the church is going to be? The church itself. 
Well, if the church does not have membership, if the church can't know who is and who is not a believer, then we just open our front doors on Sunday mornings, and anybody who happens to walk in the door can come in and say, hey, I think we ought to engage in this mission. And we know what not, whether or not that person is indeed a believer, a faithful follower of Christ, or a pagan down the street. Notice Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch. Notice a very specific expression of a local church. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Who bears the responsibility for the mission of the local New Testament church. The church. The church gathered. The church responded to the call of the Spirit of God, and they sent Barnabas and Saul off on mission with Christ. Look over just a few pages to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 and verse 22. So you know well this conversation that has taken place here in Acts chapter 15. There's this disagreement that has arisen, and how is the church in Jerusalem going to respond to, to this situation? Notice what the text says, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, that's the pastors of the church, with the who? Whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. How is the mission of the church decided? Who has the authority to send anyone out on mission? The church itself. But if the church is, according to Matthew 18, a gathering of a specific group of people who are indeed themselves believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, how are we as a church supposed to know who is and who isn't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ if we don't have a process for membership? The church bore responsibility for the mission, but notice the church also bore responsibility for its doctrine. Look with me in Galatians chapter 6. Sorry, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church at Galatia. He's writing to the church at Galatia. Let's read, begin reading in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Someone want to take a guess for me as to the you, is it singular or plural? 
Well, let's keep reading. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, singular or plural, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you, singular or plural, if we should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Is the you singular or plural? Thank you, Scott. It's not a trick question. It's plural. Who bears the responsibility for the doctrine of the local church? Do I bear the responsibility solely for the doctrine of Woodlawn? No. If you are participating in a life of a church where the guy standing up behind the pulpit claims that he solely has the right, correct word from God, run! The church, you, bear a responsibility. We collectively bear a responsibility for right doctrine, for the doctrine of the church. Now, how can we come together as a group of believers and make a decision about what our doctrinal position should be on Christ if we have no idea who is or who is not a believer in our gathering? How are we supposed to have a sense of of confidence that indeed your life is being directed by the Spirit? if I don't know you. The early New Testament church had a process of understanding who was indeed specifically connected to that church so that they could rightly execute the mission of God the doctrine of Christ and the apostles, and lastly, it's discipline. Look with me in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, and then if you want to go ahead and take your finger and stick it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we're going to make our way to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to read two texts of Scripture from this passage. Chapter 5, verse 2. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among whom? You, to whom was 1 Corinthians written? The church at Corinth. How is the church at Corinth supposed to know who this you is, who this guy is, 
if he is not indeed a member of this church in Corinth? How are you supposed to remove somebody from among you if there is no among you-ness? If we don't know who you is, how can we remove you from among you if we don't know you? And then look at verse three. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Verse four, when you are, what? Assembled. In the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When does a church execute judgment? Discipline? When it is assembled. But if I don't know who the assembly is. How can I be certain that, a one, that one making a decision over here is indeed part of the body of Christ? I can be certain if we rightly participate church membership, understanding that the church is the highest human authority in declaring who is and who is not a believer. And my life being connected to a local New Testament church is an expression of assurance that, Lewis, you are indeed a believer. The church. How do we know what the church is? If there's no process, if there's no membership in deciding the mission the doctrine, and the discipline. And lastly, I'd like to make an argument to you from the New Testament as it relates to leadership. The leadership of the local New Testament church. Notice with me in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is going to give the qualifications for one who has a desire to serve in the office of elder, pastor, or bishop. Those three words are synonymous. So if you feel like it today when you leave out, say, Bishop Lewis, we enjoyed being at church today, okay? Then notice what happens after we get the qualifications for pastor. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, we get this qualification for, for deacon. One who's going to serve in an office in the local New Testament church. And then notice what Paul says, beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one is to behave in the household of God. And what is the household of God? The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So don't miss what Paul is saying here. 
One of the things the New Testament church is going to do is make a judgment on who her leadership can be. Who is to make the judgment about the qualifications for leadership? So suppose I say today, you know what? I'm really tired of preaching to this same group of people. Next Sunday, I'm going to show up. I don't know what time church starts, but let's just say it starts at 10:15. I'm going to show up at a Struma Baptist Church and walk in and say, "Hey, my name is Pastor Lewis, and I'm going to be your pastor today." What would they say to me? You're who? Who gave you the authority? By the way, this is also, friends, one of the reasons why Baptists have got to rethink our understanding of ordination. And let me also just make this comment to you. Today at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Sex Abuse Task Force for the Southern Baptist Convention is going to release their report. And there's going to be a lot of yelling and screaming on social media. But let me say to you, one of the things that we could do to fix some of the problems as it relates to that very specific conversation is to rethink how we understand ordination. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Who bears the responsibility for Woodlawn Baptist Church in deciding who a pastor can be at Woodlawn Baptist Church? Be very careful how you answer that now, Woodlawn. Who makes that decision? Well, some of you said the congregation, some of you said Woodlawn, but you know what? When I came to Woodlawn, one of the questions I got asked is, who ordained you? So you know what Woodlawn was doing in some way? We want to know what another church had to say about you. So what happens in the context of some of these shenanigans? A guy, 20 years ago, gets a piece of paper from a church that he hasn't seen in 20 years, and he walks around making declarations that he is a pastor, separated and connected from authority of a local church, and some church hires him because he has a sheet of paper from 20 years ago. And then we find out, oh my goodness, he actually got fired from the last church because he was a sexual pervert. Ordination ought to be solely a local New Testament issue. I'm not being dismissive, but quite frankly, I don't care what some church 20 years ago had to say about you brother who wants to be a deacon at Woodlawn. And I don't care what some church 15 years ago had to say about Lewis who wanted to be a pastor. I do care what this church has to say about this church's leadership. How can this church rightly adjudicate who can be and who cannot be her leaders if we don't know who is and who is not a believer? Membership in a local new t- leadership in a local New Testament church is ultimately founded upon an idea of a gathering of a group of people who meet the qualifications. What are the qualifications? Faith, hope, and trust in Christ 
to make a decision as to who can and cannot be a leader. And notice what Paul says. I'm writing to you concerning these issues so that you might know how to act, to behave in the context of the local New Testament church. So our selecting leadership is an indication ultimately of how we act and respond in the context of the local New Testament church. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 through 5. By the way, we didn't make it to 2 Timothy, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, but I figured you've got the point on discipline. I asked you to put your finger in there a few minutes ago in case you're wondering. You can go back and read that text. It's Paul reflecting to the church at Corinth that they have indeed made the right decision and removing the one who is causing all the problems among them. And Paul is pleading for the mercy of God to be shown to this person so that ultimately they would come to faith in Christ. First Peter chapter 5, so I exhort the elders. Here we are again. In fact, here's a great text. You're going to see the interchangeability of these words in this text. I exhort the elders among you. Among who? The church. The church at Ephesus here. As a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So there we go, we've seen the two words. We've seen elder, now we've seen the word shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Here we are, we see this third expression now of a bishop. Not under compulsion, but, uh, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful game, not eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, those of you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How am I to shepherd the flock of God among me if I don't know who the flock of God among me is? How can I be responsible? How can I bear responsibility for a person that is not a member of this flock of God that is among you? So go back to my illustration a few moments ago. If I walked into Estruma and said, I'm your pastor and I'm going to preach today, what might their response be to me? You're not a pastor among us. Right? I'm not a pastor at Estruma. I bear no authority or, or influence. In the life of the people of this room, I have no responsibility. Zero responsibility for people who participate in the life of the Shroom of Baptist. And to the same extent, the elders at, Wood, at Estruma Baptist Church bear no responsibility for the people of God at Woodlawn. Well, how can we know who's at Woodlawn and at Estruma and at Jefferson and wherever else? If there isn't 
a membership process that ultimately lends itself in the church making a declaration against my life, yes, I believe you are indeed a believer. And lastly, look with me to the book of Hebrews. Two texts in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 7. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. And then we'll go to verse 17. Remember your leaders. What leaders? Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How can you know who your leader is, and how can the leaders know who you are, if on this Sunday I can preach at Estruma, and next Sunday I can preach at Jefferson, and the following Sunday I could preach at Healing Place, that would be fun, and the following Sunday I could preach at First Baptist. And how are you to know who your leader is if you can participate here and there and everywhere and actually be nowhere? How do we live out the commands of this text of Scripture? If the New Testament isn't demanding, commanding, and expecting you and me to live our lives in relationship to one another in the context of a local church where that local church has made a declaration against my life, you are indeed a believer. And lastly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. So we ask you, brothers and sisters, writing to the church at Thessalonica, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. If there is no command in Scripture or expectation in Scripture 
for me to be connected to a single church where my faith is affirmed, where I participate in the mission of God, in the doctrine of the church, in the discipline of the church. If there is no one overseeing my soul, how do we rightly live out these commands of Scripture to care for one another in this way if we can't even know who one another truly are? Friends, God has designed your life and my life to be connected to a local New Testament church where our faith is affirmed, where we participate in the mission of God, the doctrine of the church, the discipline of the church, and we submit our lives to our leaders, to one another, and to Christ. And the way we rightly do that is by connecting our lives to a local expression of a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, spirit-driven congregation. Are you participating in the life of a church in this way, friend? Are you connected to the body of Christ in this way? Has your faith been affirmed by others? Or are you trying to live on an island by yourself, thinking that you can make it in your relationship with God? Friend, I pray this morning that if that is you, you've heard the overwhelming evidence from the text of Scripture, and that God by His Spirit would work in your life in such a way that you would see the importance of being connected to the body of Christ. Connect your life today to the body of Christ and live for God's glory. Or maybe you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ. So you stand outside the church, whether that is an expression of a universal church or the local church. As we think about the church, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, that Jesus has given his life for the church. That's for you and for, for me, those who believe. Christ has made a sacrifice. Through his sacrifice, he has paid the penalty of, of your sin debt and my sin debt. Would you hear the love that Christ has? Would you be compelled to trust, believe, to have faith, and in doing so, seek to be part of this New Testament church? Or friend, perhaps you're even a member at Woodlawn. And that membership consists in you showing up from time to time, but not in a measurable way actively participating in the body of Christ. Where you see your faith affirmed. How do we see our faith affirmed in the context of the local church? One of the greatest ways in which we see our faith affirmed in the context of the local church is by gathering and participating in the Lord's Supper. 
For the Lord's Supper is this reciprocal communication among each other and to each other. Yes, I believe you to be a believer. If you're not actively participating in the body of Christ, how do you rightly live your life out on mission with God, disconnected from the local church? Would you see the benefits of the local church today and recommit to rightly participating? Perhaps you're here and you're here every week. Pastor, I'm at church every Sunday and we praise God for that. We rejoice in that. But that's the only connection that you have with the body of Christ. Would you hear this text of scripture and hear the way in which these scriptures relate to this one another, this one anotherness, if you will? How we love one another, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. How we communicate with one another in, care, in terms of care. I didn't even talk about how 1 Timothy chapter 5 talks about how we care for the, for the widows of the church. How are we to know who the widows of the church are if there's not a membership process of understanding who is and who is not a, a member of the church? Would you hear the overwhelming evidence from the New Testament And would you commit your life to a greater participation in the body of Christ? Why? Because our participation in the body of Christ is the way that we collectively carry out the mission of God. I need you. You need me. And we all need one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love that has been so extended to the life of your people in giving us Jesus and calling us to one another. So God, we pray today that as we collectively hear the word of Scripture that you, Spirit of God, by your word might compel us to love Christ more. And in loving Christ more, Lord, would you compel us to love your church more? We thank you, God, this morning for the way in which Woodlawn Baptist Church does so many of these things so well. God, it's not anything in us. It's everything from you. We thank you for the faith, the trust, the hope that the people of God at Woodlawn have in the sufficiency of your word, the devotion that they have toward one another. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would compel each of us to rightly participate in your church, knowing that when your church gathers and rightly worships, you, our great Father, are glorified. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and respond to the preaching of God's word? What's your connection to the church? Do you see the benefit of your connection to this body? How are you benefiting others by your participation in the life of this church?
How are you participating as an individual in the mission of this church, in the doctrine of this church, and the discipline of this church? How do you faithfully walk with God in submission to this church's leaders? As you follow them as they follow Christ. Would you ask God to increase your love for his church? Would you ask God to increase the desire in your heart for participation in this church? And would you commit, commit to that today, friend? In just a moment, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. If you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, as we sing, please don't feel as though you have to come talk to just uh, Pastor Travis or myself. You can turn to someone seated next to you, for there are plenty of people in the life of this church who know the gospel and would delight in sharing it with you. Perhaps you would just like for one of us to pray with you. That your love for Christ's church might grow. That your participation in the body of Christ might increase. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. And thirdly, maybe God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a church in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response might be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?